You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor along with Romain Bostic and Joe Weisenthal. What You Miss? Come on, it's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we took a look at one entrepreneur trying to address the disparity of the unequal recovery we're seeing amid the economic fallout from the coronavirus. Michael Render. Now, he's better known as Killer Mike. He's a Grammy-winning rapper, now of the hip-hop duo Run The Jewels. He's an actor, he's an activist, he's an entrepreneur, and, in fact, well, he now owns a bank. Yeah, Render, along with former Atlanta mayor Andrew Young and other partners, have raised a cool $3 million from private equity investors with a mission to address the scarcity of black-owned banks and reach an underbanked black community. How? Digital lender. Greenwood. It's aimed at serving underrepresented communities and it's backed by the FDIC. And so we started asking Michael about, well, the emotive name he chose for his bank, Greenwood. It's a district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was once the wealthiest African-American community in the US. Back in the 1920s, it was known as Black Wall Street. Then it was destroyed by the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921. We asked Michael well, what he is looking to rebuild here. Carolina, let me say, first of all, thank you for acknowledging it for what it was. It was a race massacre. Um, oftentimes it gets called uh, um, of many things except what it was. It truly was a massacre. An outside well-armed militia came into a black town that had thrived financially, turned a dollar 36 times before it left that community and built a great self-sustaining community that was not only good for Greenwood, but good for Greater Tulsa. They destroyed that. And in destroying that town, they destroyed the American dream, not only for the black people that were in that town, but for Greater Tulsa and Oklahoma, because everyone knows when the black community or any disenfranchised community gets better, our country is a better as a, as a whole gets better. So thank you for acknowledging that. We named it Greenwood because people need to stop living, um, not stop living, people can stop living in past trauma. That is a traumatic experience to black people in this country. But if we address the massacre end, we stay in that place. By naming and invoking the name of Greenwood as something going forward in a positive manner, we're telling young black people that you have the opportunity to rebuild on top of rubble, have a strong foundation, and hopefully I'm planting a seed now that will one day grow into an oak tree that will take care of my grandchildren's grandchildren. Michael, and when we talk about sort of economic empowerment, I mean, you draw sort of the analogies to what once was in not only Tulsa, but quite frankly, quite a few towns uh, yes. around this country. Um, there was actual destruction there. 
Um, there was yes. sort of another wave of, I guess, black economic empowerment that came about in the 60s and 70s. That kind of petered out, not because of yes. physical destruction, but more because you had large corporations that became yes. a little bit more inclusive than what they had been in the past. So now I could go to uh, what is now Bank of America or J.P. Morgan and get a yes. loan in a way that I couldn't have done in the 50s or the 40s. How now is this new movement going to sort of thrive in that environment when I still, as a black person, have plenty of options to choose from? Well, let's just say that it didn't just skip from Greenwood to financial prosperity of corporations opening up in the 60s and 70s. We endured 80 years of Jim Crow, redlining, American soldiers that came home that couldn't get the GI Bill. And every step of the way of black Americans and Americans who were on the side of have fought against that. Black banks, a 95-year bank in Atlanta called Citizens Trust, came out of that and was born out of that. That bank underwrote many houses in the neighborhood I grew up in, a neighborhood called the Collier Heights. It's a nationally registered historic neighborhood. It was gentrified by black people for black people. So every step of the way, I just want to let black people know, you have found a way to do it. And Greenwood is another way to do it. And in an era where the four largest banks are denying you loans at about 21% compared to 8% for white people, at a time where many large banks have proven themselves to be untrustworthy, like Wells Fargo was a few years ago, skimming off millions and millions of accounts, you need a name that is going to be able to be trustworthy and one that is set in the motion to seeing you accumulate wealth and be the first, second, or third generation that has wealth in your family if you're black, Latino, disenfranchised, in any way. Greenwood is that. As we grow, banking is coming right into our telephones. My 13-year-old banks through her phone. <laughs> I bank still by going into brick-and-mortar places, and as they take brick-and-mortar places out of our community, we seem to be lost. Greenwood is bringing your bank right to your lap, right in your home. You're available to do not only savings and deposits, Open goal is to grow into a lender for automobiles, for homes. Homes is the first step, the first sign and um, piece of wealth that many first-generation Americans or many first-generation enter into homeowners can lead to their children. So Greenwood is carrying a protracted struggle of, of, of black banking that Frederick Douglass attempted to do, Fannie Lou Hanks, whose birthday was a few years ago, mm -hmm. attempted to do, that many banks have successfully done, like Citizens Trust, One United, and Carver. We're going to add to that. In a capitalistic society, more competition usually equals better outcome for the customer. So we're looking forward to getting into the fray and providing services that will prevent the need for check cashing places, that will prevent the need from pay, payday loan places, yeah. mm -hmm. and that will prevent the need from um, predatory banking. I am curious from a personal and a business perspective, in the middle of a pandemic, without an extra stimulus deal, what has it been like launching a business? What would you like to see from Washington? What help would you like from a stimulus package? Sid, I, 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 I always remind people, I sing and dance for a living, and people tend to think that's a very glorious thing. Okay, Michael, you dance, it's okay. They tend to think rappers and athletes um, are okay. Um, let me say, beyond thinking about rappers or athletes, I want you to think about the people that set up gymnasiums, that set up stages, that have small and local bars where people, you know, I was performing in 300 people rooms eight years ago. Um, if it wasn't for a bar called The Blind Pig, I wouldn't have been able to be here where I am as a member of Run the Jewels because we were performing at so many times we built our audience. There's a stimulus package that's coming through that I lobbied my governor a few weeks ago to pass that federally we're lobbying to pass because my tour manager educated me and helped me understand how many people were truly out of work, not just the people who sing and dance and run up and down the court. So I just like to say that it has been very hard on my industry. It is not easy. And I'm not just talking about the people who get the roses at the end of the show, the people who put the show on for you. 
So they are as essential as anyone else because entertainment um, in these times is important to people. People need a reason to smile, to laugh. People need a reason to fellowship, although there's safety di distancing. I think that, um, and I I'm proud of our politicians for passing those bills where they have. And I'm hoping that once we get back to work, that the people who are suffering most now, the essential workers, the production workers, the people who are on the bottom rung, who are trying to keep this world some familiarity for us. I hope and pray that we're going to be able to not only help them with stimulus packages, but that Greenwood will be a place for them to put their money for, to, to have competitive cost in terms of what it costs to have a checking account. And I hope these people will grow into small and large business owners with the capital that we plan to be able to invest. We know you for entertainment. We also happen to know you for perhaps swag shop, restaurants that you own. But, Michael, we know you from Outcast. I know you back from is where your career Thank really you. launched and now run the jewels. But people also know your face, perhaps a lot of your audience, from really what went viral after the killing of George Floyd, when yes. you really turned to the audience in Atlanta, asking them perhaps to feel their anger but put it to a positive perspective and you yes. said at that time it was time to plot to plan to strategize to organize and to mobilize in an Absolutely. effective way Absolutely. are you seeing as we talk about politics at the moment are you feeling that people are mobilizing in an effective manner yeah i'll tell i'll give you two great examples from the atlanta area we had a 24-year incumbent district attorney here that the community was not very happy with because of the long and exorbitant sentences they saw him as sentencing boys who looked just like him. He was a black man, and a lot of black men and women were sentenced to what people thought was just sentences for too long, and there was no restorative justice. There was no out on the other side where you were a better human being. His former employee left the DA's office, Fonnie Willis, ran against him on a more progressive campaign, and she won. And not only did she win, she won decidedly. I'm now on her transition board, and our hope is to bring more restorative justice to the Fulton County Courts and less punitive damages when we can, because when we're not just, we're damaging people's lives a lot of times. A 17-year-old kid makes a dumb mistake with a gun. He shouldn't spend 30 years in jail if no one's dead. He should spend two years in the yeah. Gary Davis's Next Level Boys Academy, because that's been proven to work. Another is Mayor Ted, formerly of Clarkston, who's now in the DeKalb County 6th Commission seat. He was a Bernie crat. Bernie, of course, we, we know did not win nationally, but Ted has very progressive policy. He won locally, and I look forward to that county becoming a more progressive county. I also look forward to these municipalities. I also look forward to these municipalities um, banking with Greenwood and other black banks because the South Woods municipality that I talked about is 98% black. All of the politicians and chief um, down from the sheriffs are black, and I intend to see some of that money make it into a black institution as well. All right. Well, so, I mean, this is uh, an impressive project, uh, uh, Mike. I mean, I grew up in Chicago in the shadow of Seaway Bank, which is uh, long gone now. Uh, when you talk oh, about man, your... you you went back. Yeah, there, yeah right? I went back. Yeah, <laughs> and um, but it's good to see this coming back. There are questions, though. I mean, this is effectively a project around solidarity, black solidarity. That seems to be the message Caroline was referencing about the, the speech you gave uh, in Atlanta. And I'm curious that in this political environment where the for many voters, it basically comes down to a binary choice, at least for black voters, where you're either going to pick the guy who's going to hurt you or you're going to pick the guy who's going to hurt you less. You backed yeah. Bernie Sanders uh, pretty early I on did. in this political process. Um, we now have a Democratic uh, nominee who's not Bernie Sanders. He's what not. is the general idea here behind black people who aren't necessarily singular in political beliefs getting behind basically this binary choice? Um... I, I, I was at a dinner last night with former Mayor Kasim Reed. I was at a dinner um, with a man who owns a refrigeration company here, 
Um, Reed, of course, is a total line Democrat. He was an amazing mayor, left our city with a $200 million um, uh, excess of money. He, um, he, le he left us with Tyler Perry. The brother right across the table from him is a diehard Republican and Trump yeah. voter. They had a lively discussion. And what it really came down to is no matter who you vote for, no matter who you vote for when you go in, what is the party and what is this country willing to deliver to our community to help us be the best and strongest financial community, social and political? Because when our community is stronger, this country is stronger. When black people as a community are more unified in terms of our dollar, yeah. social I issues and politics, the country is better off for it. So no matter who you get behind, right. I would just say the day after you vote, you should be on their line demanding more for our community because if given the proper chance, we could be as affluent, as productive, any other community in this country. This has been the Will They or Won't They week of stimulus negotiations. Talks for more fiscal relief were on between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, and then they were abruptly off by President Trump, all before being, well, back on by the White House again. Now, in all this back and forth, maybe, just maybe, there is another politician that should be playing a bigger role. Maybe it's Joe Biden. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Carl Smith, who is also the co-founder of the economic blog Modelled Behaviour. Well, he wrote this week that Biden can be the one, perhaps, to break the impasse. We spoke with Carl about his piece and started by asking him, well, what is the precedent for a presidential candidate being one to actually break the legislative stalemate? Uh, well, if you remember in the last crisis, um, you know, George Bush, uh, George Bush's secretary, Hank Paulson, designed um, the TARP plan. Uh, but its biggest problem was that the uh, Republicans in Congress, especially in the House, uh, completely re rejected it. And so, um, long story short, uh, they called a big summit. They invited both uh, candidates, who was uh, John McCain and Barack Obama. And uh, in that meeting, Barack Obama essentially took over and decided, like, this is what this is what, how we're going to sell the plan. This is how we're going to structure. This is how we're going to get people on board. Um, he brought enough Democrats on board that they got it passed, even with uh, the majority of Republicans in the House uh, voting against it. And so we saw him as a candidate uh, take a leading role. I mean, he was very popular, you know, among Democrats and say, you know, I know this is Hank Paulson's bill, but it's a good bill. This is why you should vote for it. This is why we need to come to a resolution to, to get the economy moving. And so I made the point that I think, you know, Joe Biden could play a similar role today. I mean, you have um, you I think you do have moderate Republicans who want to deal, um, but not enough to get it through the Senate on Republican votes alone. You'd need Republicans and Democrats right. in the Senate to, Senate to come together. And that's the kind of thing that Biden could broker. It's not the kind of thing that Trump could broker. Right. Trump is not going to get Democrats to sort of agree, you know, with some, with uh, moderate Republicans um, to come across the line. And Trump doesn't have enough pull anymore with conservative Republicans just to force them across I wanna, the line. Carl, I want to yes. I want to press you on that because you say President Trump, in your view, doesn't have enough pull. It's not also clear that he's applying a ton of effort. Yes, he tweets, he's like, get a deal. And Mnuchin and Pelosi seem to have developed some sort of rapport and they seem to work well together. But if Trump really pushed hard uh, and, you know, does what he does well, which is berate uh, senators and people who disagree with him, do you think that he could get it over the line, something bigger? Or do you think on something like spending, he just really uh, does not have much purchase? He could. I mean, if he went if he went all out and called out senators by name, yes. I mean, there's some people who would stand up to that. I mean, like Rand Paul, 
you know, probably wouldn't go for that. But like, you know, I mean, very conservative Ted Cruz, you know, uh, his whole crew would probably move if the president started calling them out by name on Twitter, uh, was really aggressive. You know, I think that, you know, because of his advisors, he's gotten advice that the stimulus is good, but that like, it's almost like too late for him. And so I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why he's like right. not pulling out the stops like he pulls out the stops sometimes. Yeah, I'm curious about the idea of it being uh, too late. I mean, we talk about the pillars of this economy. And while we have seen some strength, Carl, in some of the economic data, um, you know, the help that we got out of the CARES Act uh, and some of the other provisions that were tied to it have more or less expired. Uh, it, it, there's a gap here, I guess, right. for a lot of folks who haven't really uh, had a check or had assistance now uh, in weeks and in some cases months. How much does stimulus in mid-October or late October really help them? And help the economy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's enormous. I think it's a, I think it's enormous for the economy because um, we haven't yet seen sort of the fallout from UI ending and people you know not getting their checks. Um, most of the data said that you know people did try to save some of that, not knowing how long. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty, so they did save some of that and they have a bit of a cushion. Um, but as we go on, I mean, if we're trying to make it into like the next session. That's going to be sometime in February because remember Biden's not going to it wouldn't be inaugurated until like late January and then they have to pass something, um, and so you know that's going to be months before anything would be done. So for the economy itself, I think it's, it's it's extremely important and would make a huge deal. Even even for Trump, you know, if he just he doesn't say he doesn't care about the economy at all, he only cares about reelection. It would still be in his interest because as we get through um, the month of October, the longer people have gone without that cash flow, the more pinched they're going to be feeling. Um, it wouldn't be surprising to me that that if that was behind some of the deterioration we're seeing now. I mean, obviously, the stuff is bad, but um, that wasn't hurting him for a long time. He's starting to hurt a little bit worse now, and I think the expiration could be one of the explanations for it. The fact that we had lousy-ish jobs numbers on Friday that we kind of all ignored because of the more uh, evident news flow that was coming in terms of President Trump's own health. But how much worse could that picture get in the next 30 days as the campaign continues? Um, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, like, so predicting the jobs numbers has been has been um, been tough. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, complete flattening out, you know, is, is not unrealistic, uh, especially, like I said, we, we just haven't seen, in my opinion, um, the effect of, of the running out of UI and these other provisions. And they should, like, ramp up pretty – they should start out slow and then ramp up really fast as people's, you know, cash flow gets low. Um, and that, that could conceivably be in the next 30 days. I mean, it's hard to predict. Um, how much, you know, buffer people have, but it's reasonable to think in the next 30 days we could really see a drop-off. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Now, as the waiting game continues for another potential round of fiscal stimulus, well, the lack of aid, it's affecting some parts of the economy, obviously, rather disproportionately. The Federal Reserve released some stark, pretty eye-opening, raw data on the wealth gap in the United States. Now, the 50 richest Americans, 50 richest Americans, now hold almost as much wealth as half of the country, making the case for a K-shaped recovery that even Biden's now talking about. Now, we've got some perspective on the economy recovery alphabet soup that we keep talking about. The former Federal Reserve economist, Claudia Sam, who is now a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. We started by asking her where the economy goes from here if there is no more stimulus. It's a big problem. As you were just talking about the wealth inequality, the difference between the haves and the have-nots, without more relief from Congress, without more support to get this recovery going and going fast again, then there are going to be people that will suffer and suffer for decades. I mean, think of the young adults coming out on the job market. Think of the people of color, the, the workers who've been on the sidelines until just last year their hopes and dreams got smashed by COVID and Congress is the one that can do more. And if they don't, we're going to pay for it. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Well, you know, so obviously there's this question about whether we'll get another stimulus, but it is true, however, that the unemployment rate, at least on the headline, is far below uh, what it was just a few months ago. It's even below already, and it has been for a while, what the Fed thought it was going to be at the end of 2020, and the Fed assumed that we'd get additional stimulus. Do you think it's plausible that we get a return to pre-crisis levels of activity without a further aid if it just never happens for uh, political reasons? Yeah, we'll get there. I mean, the American economy is dynamic. We will pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That was the case after the Great Recession. But there is no reason to make it as slow and painful as what we saw a decade ago. The fact that we're in a better place, and we're still in a really bad place, but we're in a better place right now in terms of the job market than it looked like back in March and April. And the reason for that is because the relief went out. $2 trillion in the CARES Act. It worked. We have evidence, all kinds of evidence. So do it again, right? Like more of a good thing right now would be really good. Does it, on that note, though, I mean, I mean, there's no doubt that it worked. And, and it seemed like that was just sort of a, a ripple in time where the political will sort of all synced up. Um, given the political environment and the idea here that now, uh, for reasons uh, that... Uh, for a myriad of reasons, you're going to have one party uh, that are all of a sudden going to become deficit hawks. Are we going to actually get another round of that type of sort of direct stimulus, that direct feed of money to people? Do you believe that? I'd be shocked. I'd love to be shocked and proven wrong. But I felt like when the relief expired, when the extra $600 to the unemployed expired at the end of July, that was our shot of getting relief this year. And we missed it. Right. It's it's so predictable that talks broke down this week. We are too close to an election. You have partisanship and politics. And frankly, I don't see it after the election either Mm. in some scenarios. So I think because we're at the place after the Great Recession where Congress stepped away, we said, oh, there's a recovery. Just let it go. We're worried about deficits. And it is clear that Congress and policymakers in D.C. did not learn that lesson. And we're doing it all over again. 
People who are shouting from the rooftops about this has been Jay Powell in his measured tones, trying to get the view across that more fiscal stimulus is needed. Is there anything that monetary policy can do from here? Well, they need to stop shouting at Congress, right? Like, it's been pretty obvious for a while now that Congress is not going to act. So I would like to see the Federal Reserve, even out in public, pushing for new ideas, new ways to help support the economy, asking for authority, using authority it has, even if it's in the regulatory space. Like, they have got to figure out how the Federal Reserve can do more. They cannot rely on Congress to do this, and they know it. And frankly, I, I'm happy that Jay Powell has been so direct. It is unusual for a Federal Reserve chair, but it's not working, right? Well, you can't just keep doing it and hoping for the best. I'm really interested in what you're saying about new tools. And of course, you know, they're not going to be able to get right now Congress to vote to give them new powers. Rates are near zero and probably going to be already for several years. So there's not clear there's much more that can be done on the rate side. That leaves some sort of credit easing. What are the tools that you think the Fed clearly has within its legal toolbox that can do this, you know, more money in the economy, either through businesses or through households right now? Well, the low-hanging fruit are the authorities they already have. So in this COVID crisis, we know that it has affected some groups much more hard, right? And so we talk a lot about communities of color, less educated. The Federal Reserve, among other bank regulators in the United States, has the Community Reinvestment Act. They could issue rules that incentivize banks even more to do lending in low-income communities to minority-owned businesses. The Federal Reserve has had a blind spot about relying only on monetary policy to stabilize the economy. They have those tools right now. The other thing, and I do think this would probably require some light touch from Congress, is to have to go back in and get the Main Street lending facility and the municipal lending facility working and working in a way that they get low cost, long term loans out to the communities and the medium sized businesses that need it. So, Claudia, I'm all sort of awaiting to see kind of what this uh, quarter, or I guess the current quarter, which is uh, the, the GDP number is, and just how much it rebounded. There's a theory going on around uh, some folks on Wall Street, we're, so we're talking investors, traders here, not economists, that there is enough consumption out there right now in the economy to sort of keep things going and keep things on the upswing, even in the absence of another round of fiscal stimulus. Are you seeing that in your research, in your data? No. I, yeah, there's a recovery there. Again, I want a faster recovery. I think all Americans want a faster recovery. And if you go under the hood of the consumer spending data, which I did for 10 years at the Federal Reserve, and you look at the breakdown of the spending on services and goods, services spending is not recovering at a pace that is a good pace. And service spending is about $10 trillion of the $20 trillion economy. I don't want to hear about residential investment or durable goods purchases. That is not enough. And until COVID is out of the way and under control, people are going to be afraid of going out and doing person-to-person -person services. So I just don't see the scenario. Like, you got to think about why the dynamics are there. And it just, it, to me, it doesn't add up. Right, this overly optimistic uh, viewpoint. And frankly, that's been around since March and it's been proven wrong over and over again. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. 
athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. On Friday, well, we learned that the White House had actually upped their offer for stimulus to $1.8 trillion, with President Trump saying now that he actually wants an even bigger relief number than what either party has offered so far. But what might be getting lost in all this coronavirus relief talk well, is that the virus itself is still here and it's stronger than ever. Just this week, we saw hotspots in New York City raising hospitalizations in, ta- in Texas. Two counties in California moved backwards and it's reopening. Outside the United States, well, I look across the pond, the surge in Europe, in Ireland, Italy, Spain, France, announcing a rising cases, new records being set, the UK locking down again. It's ugly. And COVID is, of course, changed how the economy functions, how investors trade, how people work. And with Microsoft even on Friday joining the growing ranks of companies, allowing some of its employees to work from home permanently, if they so wish. But many workers, well, they're not lucky enough to have the option. And that reality has long-term implications for the economy. So we spoke about all of this with Martha Gimbel. She's Senior Manager for Economic Research at Schmidt Futures and started by asking her just how many people have been working from home during the pandemic. So as of September, you still have more than 20% of the workforce who are teleworking, working from home because of the pandemic. But as you all were referencing, you know, that masks some really big ranges in who is able to do that. If you have a college degree, if you have an advanced degree, it's very likely that you're working from home right now. Um, If you have a high school degree or less than a high school degree, you're probably not. And that also reflects the type of work that people are doing. So, you know, in finance, around half of people are working from home right now. Um, But in leisure and hospitality, it's less than 10%. And that has a lot of implications for whether or not people are going to be able to work and earn an income over the next few months to a year. And it's a lot of implications for inequality that we continue to see rising. Before we get to hopefully the silver linings of work-life balance, talk to us about the hard facts of those that are hurting right now and, and whether you see any opportunity for some furthering of tele ability to work from home or whether that's just impossible. You know, I think for some people, this has been a really positive development. Many of us are enjoying being able to work from home, have incredibly long commutes. And so there's been this silver lining. On the other hand, you know, we as a country are having to confront a problem that we've never really thought about before, which is this idea that there are entire industries that will really, you know, not be able to function until the public health crisis is solved. Um, You know, so for instance, performing arts and spectator sports, uh, employment is down almost 50% since February. They lost jobs again last month. That's just an industry that's really hard to do its job while we're in a public health crisis. 
but it's also an industry that we want to be there when we get out at the end of this. People want to go to a game again. They want to go see theater. And so we're having to think about how we are going to keep certain industries and some workers you know, surviving at a time when we just have to accept that they may not be able to earn money for a while. I am curious, though, about some of the uh, the potential longer term structural shifts here, Martha. I mean, you go back 50 years or so ago. I mean, you know, there were a lot fewer, I guess, uh, office workers or what we think of office workers today. I mean, you had to sort of be physically in an office to do your job. And now we're sort of at a stage with technology uh, and the progress we've made in our economy that a huge portion of the population can do their job from home. I'm wondering, if this accelerates that trend and if it's if, if it's even possible, I guess, for us to have, I guess, a balanced economy uh, where more people are in industries that primarily are uh, remote in some way. Look, I mean, I think to some extent what you're seeing right now is a rubber band, right? When, you know, from work from home, it's getting stretched out as far as it possibly can. And at some point, you know, once this pandemic is over, it's likely going to snap back and then reach some kind of equilibrium. Hmm. You know, I think a lot of workers are really enjoying working from home and will probably be, you know, pressing to keep that moving forward. Other people really miss the office. And so it seems likely that you'll start seeing particularly knowledge workers moving into, you know, a hybrid model where maybe they're in the office three days a week working remotely for two but that we won't be having the same kind of, you know, rigid demarcations between in the office, out of the office, remote, not remote, and that will hopefully allow workers some flexibility in their lives. There was much sort of political analysis and cartoon making of over in the UK when Rishi Sunak, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer there, sort of talking about people retraining. And of course, we can all pay lip service to that, but it's harder to make it a natural reality. What do you think will, hap- will be the long-term effects of people who found themselves high and dry, and, you know, passionate about working within the events area, working within live music, working within restaurants, and then seeing that flexibility and, and passion crumble because they're unable to do it? Do, does the economy shift in some way in the longer term, do you think, Martha? I mean, I do really want to push back on this, you know, training focus that I think that politicians and policymakers can end up in sometimes. Mm. You know, it is not the case, you know, in February that we had some kind of skills crisis and workers' skills did not markedly degenerate between February and April. Uh, They literally could not go to their place of And so, you know, yes, we need to be making sure that people are keeping up to date, but more importantly, you know, we need to be making sure that people can support their families until there's that moment where they can go back to work. That's not to say that, you know, no one should ever be retrained for new industries. You know, some of the shifts that we're seeing right now, you know, likely reflect structural changes that would have happened over the next few years, but have just been compressed. So for instance, retail. But, you know, particularly for the arts, there's not a real reason to retrain those people. We more need to focus on making sure that they are supported and can stay in their chosen field until they're back. Um, I just want to take this moment to point out that if we all run out of Netflix, everyone's going to be very, very sad. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, if actually we uh, had some people on uh, this network uh, earlier this week, Martha, who talked about the slowdown in uh, entertainment production uh, and uh, how that's actually having an effect on some of those streaming services. Getting those people back. I'm wondering in the research that you look at, 
Are you seeing people actually leave certain industries, uh, I guess, because of this idea? I mean, you have, like I said, you have actors who maybe aren't working. You have stagehands who aren't sort of doing what they would normally do on Broadway. Are these people just waiting it out and they're going to come back to those jobs or are they moving on to other industries? So a lot of this is anecdotal, but it does look like there are people who are starting to move on. And that does also reflect the fact that, you know, federal support has run out. So there were people who were able to hold on and wait it out while they had access to, you know, expanded insurance, but those benefits are gone. Um, And in many states, many localities, you know, the minimum benefit on unemployment Mm. insurance is very, very small. And so people are having to make choices about what their life is going to look like moving forward. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.